Let's get going then. If you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Luke chapter 18, the book of Luke chapter 18. In the next few weeks, we'll be voting as a country um, about who's going uh, to appoint our new or continue with the same prime minister or governing party. And I suppose at the back of some people's minds uh, is the question of, I wonder who's going to be in charge in a few weeks' time. I wonder what kind of changes they'll make. I wonder whether it will do the country good. I wonder what they'll do about immigrants or the poor or the NHS. All these questions come to mind. The Bible is a book that contains a story from beginning to end. And it starts with a very clear picture of God being in charge. He's the ruling body, the ruling party, if you like. However, our first parents, the Bible records that Adam and Eve broke relationship with God and said, rather than responding to God being in charge, we want to be in charge. So God gave us over to our own rule. And we find ourselves now in charge, our desires in charge of what we want to do, the powers of darkness in charge of the world. However, throughout the Bible, there's this growing storyline where God is saying to his, his chosen people at the time and to the world in general, there is coming a time when I am going to rule again. I will be in charge and people will be under my kingship. The Bible's word for it is the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the time when God is king and when God is in charge. And in the Old Testament and the New, there are several things that are talked about as being signs of the kingdom of God. Signs of God being in charge. The signs of God's presence with us. Sign of joy. Signs of peace, of righteousness, of deliverance, of healing and of comfort. And often in the church, particularly churches like ours, we talk a lot about the sign of healing, the sign of deliverance. And those are wonderful weeks. We're going to spend four weeks looking at just those two things. But the kingdom of God, signs of God being in charge, are much broader than just those two things. And people in the Bible and now would perhaps be wondering and asking the question, where is God ruling? Where is God in charge? And the message is that God isn't in charge in any earthly state so much. It's not the kingdom of Saudi Arabia or the kingdom of Israel or the United Kingdom where God rules. God is ruling and reigning in heaven. And now as individuals, we get to come into, step into the sphere of God's kingdom. Where we can have God's rule and God's authority in our lives. And what it looks like is some of those things. Peace, joy, righteousness, comfort, healing, deliverance, justice. And we as a church are looking at all of those throughout this term, taking two weeks at a time to engage with one of them. Last week, we introduced some of the the signs of the kingdom by talking about the nature of this kingdom when God's in charge. And one of the parables that Jesus told was of a man who found some treasure hidden in a field. And Jesus said, this man who, upon finding this treasure, in his joy, Jesus said, in his joy, sold everything he had in order to buy the field that the treasure was situated in. In his joy. Joy is not always something that people associate with church. People think of joy and festivals and celebrations as carnivals, maybe Rio de Janeiro, or going to Ibiza to experience some celebration, or to weddings. Whereas Jesus says a sign that God is in charge is the sign of joy. You might not see it in the church. Often you see it in Christians. Often I hear people, uh, upon sharing their story of how they became a Christian, they'll say, I noticed a joy in my friend's life, and I wanted it. And that led them to discover Jesus for themselves. But joy is a sign. Jesus says that this man, in his joy, 
makes costly choices. This isn't asceticism where you uh, kind of remove all comfort and pleasure from your life in order to purify yourself. This isn't self-loathing where the man got rid of all of his earthly goods because he wanted to punish himself and make himself poor. This isn't Buddhism that teaches that life is pain and life is suffering and we're to detach ourselves from fully engaging with the pleasures of this world and remain detached from the world. Now this man was motivated by joy. And in his joy, he made costly decisions. It was pure and simple, just economical hedonism, a transactional relationship. That's what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is about. The reason I won't spend 50 pounds on a donut is because I don't think a donut is worth 50 pounds. The reason I would spend 1,000 pounds on an Apple Mac is because I think an Apple Mac is worth 1,000 pounds. Um, the reason I will forego that extra slice of chocolate cake is because of the joy of a summer body that I might be able to attain or something like that. Um, We make decisions motivated by joy. We drop everything. Last week, um, who was it? Matt dropped all of the coats in order to catch the iPad. The kingdom of heaven is about joy. In fact, um, the kingdom of heaven, don't worry, I'm not going to play. Oh, I am, kind of. The kingdom of heaven is, um, if I do this, there we go, best summed up in the, if you play the scale on the piano backwards, you get a familiar carol. Let's see if this works. Yeah? Do you get that one? What is it? Joy to the world. Why? Joy to the world. Why? The Lord has come. Jesus was a joy bringer, a merrymaker. He was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And today we're going to just journey with Jesus. In Luke chapter 18, we're going to look at the good, the bad and the ugly, the people that Jesus engages with. So read along with me and we're going to comment and uh, see what Jesus has to say to us this morning from his word. Let's just get going. Okay. The context of the chapter is that Jesus has just been teaching about kids. And said, if you want to enter the kingdom, you need to become like a little child. Holds up a child and says, this is what you need to be like. Children who are powerless and unimportant. And then in the next verse it says, and a ruler asked him. A ruler in contrast to kids. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. So this man is the good in the good, the bad and the ugly. Uh, he's a, as we'll see, he's a good man. Have you ever had one of those moments where um, you try to impress someone and do something, you know, for a teacher or a boss perhaps, you do something, say something, you think it's going to impress them, only to be shot down publicly? Well, that's what happens here. What do we know about this man? What can we say about this man already from these, this verse that we've looked at? This man is a ruler, and so we know that he's powerful. We know that he's influential. And as a result of that, he presumes that he can approach Jesus. He doesn't ask permission, just thinks, I'm a ruler, I'm powerful. So he walks up to Jesus and he speaks to him straight out. We might suppose as well that this man is a happy man or a confident man at least. I read a book recently called The Happiness Hypothesis, which is a book about the science of happiness. And in it, the psychologist who was writing the book, he said, happiness requires changing yourself and changing your world. Very nice. Changing yourself and changing your world. This was a man who's used to or able to do both. He's a ruler. So he's able to influence his world. 
But he's also someone who's switched on to the idea of self-improvement. Changes himself, changes his world. He asks this question, what must I do? Comes from a good place, a place of self-improvement as a ruler would ask that. This is a man who's perhaps familiar with reading books on happiness and self-improvement or psychology books. He's a man who's into his protein shakes and watching TED Talks and having a gluten-free diet and a waste-free lifestyle and a carbon-free, carbon footprint-free man. He's an avid recycler. That's the kind of man that I get the image of. I get the image of this man talking to Jesus. In fact, he reminds me of someone I lived with at university called Russ. Um, I follow Russ on Instagram, and all of his pictures are basically of him working out in a gym with his ripped abs. Um, or if it's not of that, it's him traveling the world in some exotic part, doing some kind of yoga position in obscure parts of the world. Every time I meet Russ, he's got some new Russian girlfriend who's very beautiful, and he's a fitness instructor. And a business entrepreneur, and he's always talking about how healthy he is. He's one of those people who gets up at 3 a.m. and runs to work, and then runs home from work. And just anyway, that's who I have in my mind. I don't know who it is for you, but that's this man. He's an intelligent man. He asks a good question. This is a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's one of those questions that, you know, you've been in those meetings at work perhaps where someone asks a question, you think, why didn't I ask that? What a good question. If I asked that question, I would have been looking impressive. Or in the, in the home, Amy's always very good at asking the right question to unlock the boys when they're having a tantrum. And I'm like, why didn't I ask that question? This man asks a good question of Jesus. Jesus says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. The man said... All these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what's impossible with men is possible with God. What else can we say about this man? Well, it strikes me as a proud man. I've kept all these commandments since my youth. He's the ultimate virtue signaler. He's like, I've changed my Facebook profile every time there's been a crisis around the world. I put the French flag and the Greenpeace flag and whatever flag on my profile to tell the world, I've kept all of these things. I've done all of these things. It might be harsh in making that statement about him, but listen to how Jesus responds to him. Jesus says, and almost the, the tone, we can read Jesus' tone is this, because it says, when Jesus heard this, he then he almost tells him off. So he gets told off by Jesus. One thing you still lack. He's given an instruction by Jesus. And the instruction is like medicine designed to cure this man's particular condition. How do we know this? We know this because Jesus doesn't tell every rich person to sell all of their possessions. He tells this man. The New Testament doesn't speak that doesn't talk down about riches. It doesn't say being wealthy and being rich is an evil thing. It says loving wealth is a trap, it's dangerous. 
But wealth in itself isn't dangerous, which is a relief for those of us living in the West, in the top 5% richest part of the world. But that's what the Bible says. It doesn't speak down about it. But Jesus, like a good doctor, he prescribes the right medicine for this man, not necessarily the popular medicine. He doesn't tell this man what he wants to hear. He tells him what he needs to hear, which is hard to do. Again, in the age of social media, we surround ourselves with people who are going to give us, what, give us the advice we want to hear. That's what Facebook and Twitter is, isn't it? It's an echo chamber filled with people who are like us and agree with us. Or, or, or we might rant on Facebook knowing that we've got friends who will come alongside and say, they're there, whoever said that must be X. They're, I mean, you're a good person. We surround ourselves with people who are going to say, you're in the right, don't listen to them. You can do what you want. Trust me, I'm your friend. I'm looking out for you. But a doctor prescribes the right medicine, not the popular one. Tells you what you need to hear. Jesus says to this man, you lack one more thing. Almost reading his attitude, reading his heart. You lack one more thing. Go on, sell everything you have. And as a result, the man doesn't receive what Jesus is offering him. His hands are full. And yet he leaves empty-handed when it comes to the very thing that he came to Jesus for. Outwardly, it looks like he came to Jesus after eternal life, but he goes away sad. The man becomes sad. Jesus, the merrymaker. The kingdom of heaven is about joy, but this man leaves sad. Riches have a way of deceiving people. Deceiving people into thinking that God approves of them purely because they're rich. Being wealthy can be like having new alloys or a fresh coat of paint or a new, I don't know, a, a thumping stereo in your car. All the while under the bonnet, there's just rotten rust. And it's not just riches that do this. Education can do this. I went to the right school. I've learned how to be polite. I've learned how to hide what I really think about someone. I come from an emotionally stable home. Being a moral person having good status at work. All of those things can convince you, I'm all right, I am. Because look at my stuff. I'm all right, I am. Because look, I don't, I don't have big issues that I'm working through. Therefore, God must approve of me because my peers approve of me. Therefore, God must approve of me because at work they say this about me. I've heard it so many times, and I'm sure you have too, where people who aren't Christians say, I'm sure when I get to heaven, if there's a God, I'm sure he'll say, come on in. You're a great guy. <laughs> I'm sure you're, an, you're not an axe murderer, are you? No, you're not. Come on in. Because wealth, education, being well thought of, they have a way of deceiving people. Hoping in those things only leads to sadness. See, it's possible to have it all, to live in seafood, be part of a nice church, to be a moral person, to be religious. This man was a religious man. He was a churchgoer. He knew the Bible. Yet this man left sad when he met Jesus. It's possible to have it all, but upon meeting Jesus, leave sad. So that's the good. Let's look at the bad. Because the next person we're going to come to almost stands in stark contrast to this man. A few verses later in Luke 18, this man's in a bad way. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, in verse 35, 
a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd go by, he inquired what it meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped, commanded him to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. The first man was a ruler. This man has no influence over anyone. No one to rule over. The only thing he's in charge of is the little cup that he bangs on the floor to beg for money. How many times shall I bang it? How loud shall I bang it? That's the only thing he's in charge of. This man assumes that he can't approach whoever this important man is. He assumes. He hears a commotion in the crowd and he assumes, well, I can't speak to them. Different from the first. He then asks the crowd a question and he shouts at Jesus. First man asks Jesus a question. This man shouts at Jesus. He pleads with him for mercy. He knows he's got nothing about him that people would respect about him. He's got no status. He's got no entitlement before God. He's used to just being a wallflower in life. Someone who exists. Someone who will take what he can from the kindness of others. And in contrast to the first man who was proud, he's humble. As humble as dirt. This man though, is different. Because whereas the first man was told off by Jesus, this man is told off by the crowd. And Jesus, rather than telling him what to do, he asks him a question. You know, asking a question is a remarkable sign. It's a mark of respect. Jesus doesn't assume he knows what this man needs. I mean, he does know. He's God in human form. But rather than telling him what to do, he asks him a question. We've all had those experiences where we've sat with someone, maybe a a superior from work. And rather than listening to us, they've just told us. They've told us how it is. They've told us what to do. Rather than asking you any questions, they've just told you what to do. Rather like how babies, they don't tell us. They don't ask us a question. They just tell us, I'm upset. Feed me now. Or we've had those social engagements, perhaps where you've spent time with someone and you've been as polite and courteous as you can and only afterwards thought, they didn't ask me one question. I mean, young people are guilty of this more than most because young people by nature are self-absorbed. And so it's very rare that a young person will inquire about your life. How are you today? What? <laughs> my, my, when I come home, my son never says to me, how are you? Uh, yeah, fine. Why? What do you want? That's, we're always suspicious if that does happen. Because you expect that from immature people. You know, it's a sign of immaturity. Don't ask any questions. But Jesus asks this man a question. This man tells him what he wants. Jesus gives it to him. And the man goes home happy. The crowd are happy. Jesus is celebrating. It's a difference from the first man. It's the bad. And let's come to the last man. The ugly. See, the previous two act almost as a way of setting up this final figure. In the next verse, it says this, 
he, as Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. Jesus is passing through. And those of us who know the story know that he's not going to pass through. He's going to stop. Jesus was passing through. And so he changes his plans in order to see this man. It's happened similar with the story of the beggar. He was passing through Jericho. Stops for this man. Jesus changes his plans for this man. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. Zacchaeus is like the first man in that he's influential. He's a ruler of sorts. He's a chief tax collector. I'm not just a tax collector. I'm a chief tax I've been promoted, which basically means in the eyes of the people, he's worse than the worst because tax collectors were, were frowned upon, to say the least. To be a tax collector was to be a national traitor. It was to take from your brothers and sisters, your countrymen, in order to give to the enemy, the Romans. He wasn't a popular man in that sense. And so when it says that he was prevented by the crowd, I mean, Luke's kind. He says because he was small in stature, which I'm sure played a part. But this man was prevented by the crowd in large part because of who he was. If he was a, if he was a well thought of man, they would have let him to the front. But as it is, Jesus is passing through Jericho and Zacchaeus thinks, I want to have a look at this guy. Let me get through the crowd. And the crowd say, no way. You're not coming to the front. In fact, they shun him. They keep him out. And don't we just love it when, when people get their comeuppance, when the bully trips over or the mocker becomes the one that we all get to mock and laugh at. It's just delicious, poetic justice when bad people get what they deserve. And this is a chance for the crowd to vent their, I don't know, grievances at Zacchaeus, who's robbing from them to give to the Romans. They don't let him through. Ha, Zacchaeus, we get to block you. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. But Jesus was about to pass that way. I mean, it gets better. Jesus is passing by. So Zacchaeus, he runs on ahead. How humiliating. It's brilliant. From this day forward, he'll be known as Shorty the Sycamore because he's so little. He had to climb a tree. And to get to the tree, he had to run. I mean, it's humiliating. I mean, if you're only really allowed to run when you're chasing a ball. Any other time in your life and you run, and it's a sign that something's amiss, isn't it? You're late for something. There's a certain degree of shame, a certain degree of embarrassment coming your way. You can imagine the crowd just reveling in this. Zacchaeus, the one that none of us likes. <laughs> We've blocked him, and now he's having to climb a tree. This is superb. This is going to be the talk of the town for weeks. Do you remember the time that we made Zacchaeus climb a tree? Get in. But if that's all we see, we, we miss something. We don't see what Jesus saw. Because Jesus saw, he saw a man looking for him. I mean, only kids climb trees. When we, when, we did our, when we went for our walk on Monday to Abbott's Wood, none of the adults climbed the tree. I mean, some of them swung on the rope swing. That's acceptable. But none of them climbed a tree. The kids climb trees. It's beneath adults, isn't it? And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry 
and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus knows my name. Zacchaeus, the one that no one likes. The ugly one who steals from his countrymen. Jesus knows my name. He knows it. He's known by Jesus. I mean, none of the names of the crowd are mentioned at this point. It doesn't say, it says the crowd blocked Zacchaeus. It doesn't say Rob and Julie and John blocked Zacchaeus. The crowd. But Zacchaeus gets a mention in the Bible. In the Bible. The most influential book in the history of the world. And the ugly Zacchaeus gets a mention. And what's more, not only does Zacchaeus know, does Jesus know his name. Jesus says to him, I must come to your house. I must. Like, that's strong. The, the word that Jesus used, it, it kind of is similar to should or it's fitting, it's appropriate, it's necessary. Jesus sees a man up a tree and he says, Zacchaeus, it's necessary that I come to your tree tonight. I mean, you've got issues. You're climbing a tree. Um, I must come to your house. We don't know what Jesus is thinking at this point. But perhaps it's something like, well, look, a man up a tree. I've got to have lunch with him. I've got, I've got to find out about his story. What he sees is a man in whom God is at work. Verse 6. So Zacchaeus hurried down and received Jesus joyfully. Here's our word. And when the crowd saw it, they grumbled. He's gone to be with the guest. He's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, We've been told that Zacchaeus was blocked by the crowd. We've been told that Zacchaeus ran. We've been told that he climbed. And now, before the Lord of all the earth, he stands. He stood before the Lord. He says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. This man, who deserved public ridicule, deserved to be taken down a dark alley and beat for what he's doing, Jesus says he's also a brother. Not just a brother, he's a son of Abraham, meaning He's, he's in the in crowd. And more than that, he says salvation. In other words, he's been rescued. This man is one of mine. And then in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, it's for people like him that I came. This is exactly why I came, to find people who are climbing trees, to find people who are running, to find people who are willing to be publicly humiliated for me, for my sake. Kingdom transformation is something that happens joyfully. You receive the kingdom joyfully on the inside. And then it turns and redirects you to joyfully want to give. At no point does Jesus say, I'll come to your lunch. I'll come to your house for lunch, presuming or providing you serve the following on the menu. Or providing you do the following to the poor. I mean, you're a bad man, Zacchaeus. I'll come, providing you put your house in order. He doesn't do that. 
comes to his house. The man is joyful. He's overwhelmed. Look at the acceptance. Look at how Jesus has treated me. Therefore, Lord, I'll, I'll give it away. I'll, those I've defrauded, I'll give back. I'll turn my life around. Why? Because I've been saved. I've seen the kingdom of God. This kind of acceptance, it's him that I've been looking for. This is what I've been running after my whole life. Zacchaeus has been running after wealth. He's been doing underhanded things in order to get himself rich. And he realizes it's not money I need. It's this man. It's the kingdom. It's God. And that's what he receives. That's what Paul writes to a church in Corinth and says that God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Why does it say God loves a cheerful giver? Because the sign of kingdom transformation is that you've received joyfully and you give away joyfully. The church shouldn't be a stingy, mean-spirited place. It should be full of people who are joyful because of how they've been accepted and loved and now joyfully give. Freely we've received, now freely we give. Everything I have is yours, God. As we raise money for a building fund in Seaford, we only want the money of people who are giving joyfully because they've had their lives changed. It's a sign that the kingdom's come when we give joyfully. I find it one of the strangest things in my life. I mean, it's costly and it hurts to give, but it comes from a place of joy. I find it one of the strange things in my life that upon becoming a Christian, I now have a life goal that I want to give away more year by year as I grow in the Christian life. That's just an, that's an odd goal, isn't it? Why, why would I choose that? Well, I didn't choose that, but that's what the kingdom does. It changes you. Joyfully you receive, so joyfully you can give. And it's not just giving. It's any activity in the Christian life. To be cheerful prayers, cheerful attenders of our groups. It doesn't mean that we do everything out of an emotional state of happiness and giddiness. Life's not like that. Life's brutal. Life's hard. But it does mean that our motivating reason for things is delight. Because we're those who've been included when we should have been excluded. We're those who were like Zacchaeus. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Only one goes home empty-handed. Only one goes home sad. And it's not the one we'd expect. Jesus intended to pass by both the beggar and Zacchaeus. And yet his attention was caught. The result was joy, healing, salvation, forgiveness, and an upturned and overturned life. It's not the good who receive the kingdom. It's the bad and the ugly. It's those who know they need it. It's those who are willing to climb a tree. It's those who are willing to dig in a field. It's those who are willing to call out, have mercy on me. Wealth, education, social esteem, self-esteem, Dignity, virtue, your own morality, all of those things can pre prevent you from receiving the kingdom joyfully. But in order to receive the kingdom joyfully, instead we must realize our need of it. We must be willing to dig, to climb, to call out. See, Jesus is the merrymaker. He comes to bring joy to the world. He brings joy to those who are willing to humble themselves, who are willing to seek him out, who are willing to repent, to turn from their sin, to turn from a life of self 
rule and self-sufficiency and to say to God, I want to be in your kingdom, to throw off everything, to draw near to him. The kingdom sign, one of the signs of the kingdom is the sign of joy. And that's what we see in Jesus and in the people who met him. I'm going to close in prayer. Perhaps the band can join me and we're going to respond by singing and celebrating this Jesus. And then next week, we're going to be looking practically at how we can be joy bringers ourselves. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you come to bring joy. Thank you that the kingdom of heaven is joy. I ask that you'd help us to receive the kingdom joyfully. Help us to see how precious it is. And Jesus, today we marvel at you, at your kindness and your goodness. You're the one who knows us inside out. You're the one who knows exactly what we need. You're the one who calls us. You're the one who draws us. And for your sake, Lord, we want to be those who climb trees, who let go of our dignity in order to get you. We want to let go of everything in order to take hold of you. And he asked that you'd help us to see, God, just how precious and valuable you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.